0: You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott.
1: Hey, it's Old Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. And I'm Amber. And we are here with your weekly dose of historical true crime from 1950 and before because the good old days weren't always so good. Before we get started... We want to direct you over to our Patreon where you can find hours and hours of content that you haven't heard. There we have our weekly bonus episodes as well as our monthly extra extra bonus episodes where we go into some realms that we might not dig into on the main show. So at the $5 level, you get access to all of that and a shout out on the show, which is a pretty good deal. So go and give that a try. See if you like it. This week, we did some old-timey newspapers. I read to Amber and Scott some articles that I had found of interest in various newspapers from 1853 to 1930. So it ranges all over the place. So this week, we are finishing up Lizzie Borden. Lizzie, part two. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the trial, we're going to talk about the aftermath, we're going to talk about theories, and I have a couple of instances of just random weird shit that didn't fit anywhere else, so I I have those too. But first I wanted to clear up a couple of items from last week's episode uh, that was cleared up as I actually finished reading uh, the, the book by Kara Robertson that I used for a lot of this. The dress burning that we talked about—that was—it uh, was said to have happened. That was actually the Sunday after the murders. That was made clear later in the book during the trial. Alice Russell had actually witnessed it, so that uh, wasn't like right when the, uh, you know, police were there. She wasn't just burning the dress in the kitchen, <laughs> which is kind of how it felt <laughs> in the sources. So and we talked about the Pinkerton agent who was uh the Borden girls hired to try to ferret out the true murderer and I found a little bit more information that was O M Hanscom H- Hanscom I, there's no way to sound to say that that sounds natural <laughs> and Uh, He left after a week and we weren't really sure why it was actually supposedly because the police were being hostile toward him because they thought his main purpose was protecting Lizzie, not actually finding the truth. And it was actually Robert Pinkerton himself, the head of the company and son of one of Alan Pinkerton's sons who took it over after his death, who suggested that Hanscom leave. So I found that interesting. And there's also a little tie in to our very first episode here because two years after the Lizzie Borden events, when one H.H. H. Holmes was arrested in Boston for the warrant from Texas of horse theft that would eventually be his undoing, Hanscom was actually, uh, he had been on the Boston Police Force originally, was suspended for a bunch of stuff, and then reinstated about six years later. He was the one to question Holmes before they sent Uh, Holmes off to Philly because they were like, hey, nothing suspicious about this guy. We'll we'll just send him on.
2: Nothing weird here.
0: I smell death upon him. Off you go.
2: I'm
1: I'm sure he hasn't built a murder hotel anywhere.
0: We need that again.
1: (laughs) So picking up where we left off last week, uh, Lizzie had been in jail for almost 10 months, although her conditions weren't As bad as they would have been for somebody with, say, less money. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. The trial was held in New Bedford, Massachusetts, which is 15 miles east of where Lizzie came from in Fall River. And the Providence Journal called it one of the greatest murder trials in the world's history. They weren't even going for trial of the century. They were going for trial of all recorded history. Trial of forever. (laughs) Yes. The trial of Earth. So there's uh, the Evening World had a description from when the doors opened on the first day, uh, which was uh, jury selection. At the main entrance, the inquisitive females who had swallowed their breakfasts hurriedly or dispensed with them entirely made one of the prettiest rushes ever seen outside of college premises. Creepy. Dear god (laughs) yeah the two blue-coated representatives of the police were carried off their feet and whirled along with the resistless petticoated surge from below until several deputy deputy sheriffs jumped down to their rescue and turned the tide it's sexist already yes (laughs) Yes, the trial hasn't hasn't even started
0: (laughs) i don't even think i need to uh to be here quite honestly it's uh (laughs) if it's sexist already it's happening hey okay Good. My job here is done.
1: (laughs) Another one interesting thing, not interesting, but kind of uh, quirky that this was still a very kind of countrified town as much as it was also there was some industrial stuff going on. So there was lots of noise from the vicinity of the courthouse. And one of the reporters was particularly perturbed by what he called the irreverent cow that kept mooing.
0: (laughs) I really
2: thought you were going to tell me that was just about a lady they didn't like. Yeah, <laughs> I know,
0: right? Irreverent cow, the name of my prog rock band.
1: <laughs> and that irreverent cow mooing was the only thing that drew a little smile from Lizzie throughout the day's uh, events on that first day. Also, speaking of reporters, one of the reporters was a lady reporter. Heresy! Ugh. Burn her! She's a
0: witch!
1: <laughs> Her name was Elizabeth Jordan, and there, in the aftermath, there were some kind of questions that people asked because in 1894, so the year after the trial, Elizabeth Jordan published a short story called Ruth Herrick's Assignment, and it was published in Cosmopolitan Magazine, and it was all about a woman who was on trial for murder, and she confesses to the lady reporter assigned to her trial. And so a lot of people were like, did that maybe actually
2: happen?
1: Hmm. But the reporters in general seemed to be on Lizzie's side. It, it, it definitely felt like they weren't calling for blood. And continuing with the theme of sexism, there were still no women jurors in Massachusetts at the time. It wasn't until 1950 that women would be given the right to sit on a jury. <laughs> so any Massachusetts cases we ever do, will never have a woman jury on them. Well, I guess now we're allowed to go into like 1951, 1952 almost, I think, because this is going into our second year. And we said we'd add a year for each year that we continued. <laughs> I wonder,
0: so. I wonder who the first female juror in Massachusetts was.
1: Maybe we can do a
0: story about that trial. <laughs>
1: So maybe
0: (laughs) it probably didn't happen until 1971.
1: (laughs) Yeah. They called in 150 men uh, and there were 149 white men and one Uh, African-American. The African-American men had had the right to serve on juries in Massachusetts since 1860. The jury foreman was a real estate owner. And then uh, there were also six farmers three mechanics and two manufacturers they ranged in age from 35 to 59 and they all had three things in common i already told you the one that they were men and i want you guys to guess the other two
0: uh they were men Mm -hmm. uh i'm gonna say former police officers Mm -mm. and okay reporters no i failed entirely amber (laughs) your turn Go ahead. Show me me how much better a woman can do this.
2: Um, (laughs) Horse thieves. These are the jurors, guys, not other
1: people who will be tried after Lizzie. (laughs) 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 Uh, They were all married. And every single one of them had a mustache.
2: No, I did see that because I did see a picture of them. So I knew that they all were mustachioed yeah they look very
1: uh, very similar it's uh it's it's a pretty undiverse crowd in many ways and they most of them had children too they received three dollars a day for their service which in today's money is about 88 dollars, and the, also they got free meals so pretty pretty good deal actually I, I don't think you get that much these days at least in pennsylvania for for jury duty <laughs> and then I, I don't know
0: i i i'd shirk my jury duty
1: I I got called for jury duty a couple of times, and the one time I actually did get selected as an alternate, but it was a civil trial, and they settled as soon as the jury had finished being selected, so that felt like a huge waste of my time, but I actually think I got maybe $11 or something, and I actually, my employer required me to turn it over to them. That felt wrong.
0: Yeah? I I don't shirk my jury duty. I've just never been chosen.
2: I, a- I have been asked three times, and it was the first time I worked nights. And since it didn't interfere with my work schedule, they expected me to come in. And I'm like, that's fine, but I'm going to sleep. And you- they're like, never mind. And Do then Did you just
0: pregnant. get a letter in the mail or what?
2: Yeah, yep. I got letters in the mail.
0: No, and uh, no, the
2: second time I was pregnant, and I was like, I'm going to need lots of bathroom breaks. And they're like, no, don't come in. And then the third time I was breastfeeding. And I was like, okay, but I'm going to need breaks to pump. And they're like, never mind. And they haven't sent me anything since. I uh, yeah, the first
1: one ended with a settlement. The second time was actually all, altogether. I've been for select, not selected, but I've been called for for jury selection three times. But the second time was actually grand jury, and I was going through a period of severe anxiety. Ended up having a panic attack within the first hour of selection, and they basically like made me take one of my Xanax and leave.
0: (laughs) Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And the third time it was hilarious because they were selecting and they were going through the whole process. And I was going to tell them, you know, like, cause I tried to get an exemption because of being a professor and they didn't respond to that. And so I, Uh, went to the selection and I was going to say, I'm a, I'm a professor. I don't really have anybody that can take over my classes. You know, there, there's not really anything I can do about this. And, then, the like, one of the third people that they'd called on to say, do you have any reason that you shouldn't perform jury duty was, like, I'm a professor. And then, like, ten people later, somebody was, like, I'm a professor. And they started, like, letting those people go. But then eventually they stopped. And they were, like, how many professors are here? And, like, 18 of us raised our hands.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> yeah. And eventually we all got the let
0: go. So. Most intelligent jury selection ever.
1: Yeah, but they let us go. <laughs> so... And that case did go to trial, if I remember correctly. Uh, So, so yeah, it's definitely interesting, but I hate being called for jury duty. I always go, but I hate it, hate it, hate it. So the jurors in the Lizzie Borden trial after they were selected, remember this was you couldn't just call up your family on a cell phone or shoot them a text and say, hey, I got selected. I'm going to be sequestered because that's what was going to happen. So they were allowed to shoot their family a telegram to say, hey, I'm going to be gone for a little while. Because the trial was actually expected to be rather lengthy. And now everyone had traveled to this, including the attorneys and the judges. So they actually housed the attorneys, the judges, and the jury all in the same hotel, the Parker House. Uh, Famous people who have stopped there include Ulysses S. Grant and Hawaiian King Kalakua in, I have no idea if I pronounced that right, in 1874. Just so you know. They had the jury on the third floor, the judges on the second floor, and then they put opposing counsel at opposite ends of the hallway with the judges in between them. Just, you know, just in case there was any (laughs) fisticuffs.
0: Of course, of course,
1: of course. So they picked the jury on the first day and then the next day trial officially began. So this was a capital case there. Actually, that meant in Massachusetts, they had to have three judges for the capital
0: cases. So that was interesting. I love the word capital, by the way. Every time (laughs) Ariana takes off her shirt, I just tip my hat and go, capital Noggers, madame.
1: (laughs) Nice.
0: And they are. Lizzie had
1: a, a team of attorneys. The most prominent one was George Robinson. People actually called him an image maker. He seemed to be really good at PR was a former governor of the state, actually. He allegedly told Lizzie exactly what to wear, how to act for each step of the trial, and he made a little bit more money than the other ones did. He he asked for a little bit bigger of a fee by about 5000 I think. And his advice seemed to work, at least with the reporters. They called her self-possessed. They described her as, you know, all-American. She was modest, calm, quiet, and, quote, aloof as Buddha in a temple. Lizzie would later say, "Uh, I never did reveal my feelings, and I cannot change my nature now. I have tried hard to be brave and womanly through it all. And then she also said, while she was in jail, she said, they say I don't cry. They should see me when I am alone or sometimes with my friends. But Mm. she put on a, a, a brave face that seemed to some to be a little distant or cold. So there was that concern and the prosecution, they're not going too hard on her character. They really can't, especially in that day and age. So they acknowledge that she is, quote, a woman of good social position, of hitherto unquestioned character, a member of a Christian church and active in its good works. And so they're basically, like, complimenting her <laughs> at first. <laughs> they're like, "She, you know, everybody says she's a good woman, and she seems to be, but then this happened. And then they also, in their opening statement they go on to point out the the tension over the property issue from five years before and kind of that seems to be the likely motive from their perspective then the prosecution essentially walks the jurors through the Borden house but in words and I think that has to be one of the most boring things ever to listen to somebody describe a floor plan <laughs>
0: <laughs> and here you'll see a spacious foyer uh, mind the blood it's I, I only buy houses on Zillow whenever there's no pictures whatsoever. Just and the
1: thing is a brief description.
0: That's all I need. Yeah.
1: The thing is, they went to the crime scene later that day.
0: Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> Why bother?
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. It's just such a waste of time. And then also the prosecution went over the timeline. And then there was this really dramatic moment with a couple of exhibits.
0: No, you're not talking about, about exhibit A and B, are you? Those are the two
1: exhibits. I don't know if they're A and B in the actual trial. but the, what yeah. What
0: a horrible thing to do. What an <laughs> absolutely hard thing to do. Uh, <laughs> Mr. and Mrs. Borden's heads have been removed during the autopsy, and they just plopped them down.
1: Yeah, <laughs> just yanked them out of a bag. Here they are. Here's the skulls.
2: Yeah. Shit. Yeah. I mean, uh, they were mostly detached already, right? So. Were, <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. The, the, it seemed like the medical examiner had uh, went ahead and detached fully the skulls. And then.
0: Uh, <laughs> I just picture him like plopping yeah. the heads down. Borden did faint. And I just picture him looking over and going, what?
1: <laughs> and the thing is, yeah, she hadn't known about this. And it seemed like. The biggest part of this, aside from actually seeing the skulls, was that she and Emma weren't aware that Andrew and Abby had been buried headless, and that was very upsetting to them.
0: You know, I'm I'm honestly stunned that she's the only one that fainted.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is surprising because it seems like there would be more like the whole courtroom would swoon. I like to think, but- yeah,
2: all, all the women in the courtroom were trying to prove that they were tough enough to be jurors so
1: it would be a long time coming they got another 57 years before they'll
0: be allowed i like to think i like to think that you know i've got a pretty good constitution uh but if like if i'm sitting in a room and everything's austere and there's like you know and i'm not expecting it and somebody pulls out the severed heads of my mom and dad and plops them down in front of me i think i'm probably gonna pass out
1: yeah me too for sure absolutely and that was seen as both a show of emotion, which she hadn't really been displaying much before that moment. And also the newspapers cast it as sort of proof of her femininity, which is just so go to hell. <laughs> like weakness, which I don't, I'm not saying that feigning when seeing your parents' skulls, that's human. That's humanity right there. Uh, so but it, they cast it as weakness, which to them is is her proving her femininity, which that association is, is just aggravating as hell to me. They, they, she had actually carried smelling salts in her pockets. And I want to point out something about that sentence. She had pockets.
0: <laughs> well, you're right. Things are much worse for you than they are for her.
1: I'm actually wearing a dress with pockets right now. Things okay. are getting better. I currently
2: have no pockets. I have days
1: when I have no pockets, yeah. It's, it's,
0: it's I will. so ad- annoying. I have like two or three pairs of shorts that have no pockets in them. It is fucking annoying.
1: Isn't it? Yeah. I just yeah, walk these- through
0: Walmart with my money in my hand like some homeless person. <laughs> a wealthy <laughs> so- homeless person because I've got money. But
1: <laughs> yeah, she had smelling salts in her pockets that she'd brought along. So they grabbed those and revive her. And the trial is back on about five minutes after that. And they also uh, broke out the hatchet uh, that they found and thought was the murder weapon. There'd been a couple of ha- axes and hatchets found on the property and the prosecution said those ones had been rolled out. This hatchet, it was interesting. It was broken. It was just basically the head and in maybe an inch or two of handle. And the prosecution insisted it was a fresh break, but of course there were disputes over that later. And the thing that really drew their attention to it was, it wasn't dusty like the other axes and hatchets it was covered in ash. Like somebody had been trying to maybe hide something or remove something. So their theory was Lizzie killed her parents, broke the handle off the ax, burned it, then washed the ax and tried to like hide any bloodstains or make it look like it hadn't been used recently by covering it in ash. So interesting theory. At first, when I read about the handleless hatchet, I thought that it had been handleless when she was supposed to have used it. And I'm like, that is the most awkward way. (laughs) Like, holding that would be weird, and I don't know how.
0: (laughs) Like, if you murder somebody with a handleless hatchet, I'm saying that's more impressive, and you should be let go because of that.
1: (laughs) So, yeah, that was uh, the hatchet and the skulls. And after lunch, they, as I said, go to the crime scene. Uh, They take the train and once they get to Fall River, there are over 350 people from the town and the places around it waiting to watch them tour the house and the neighborhood. They were taken on a little tour of the same path that Andrew would have taken uh, the very morning he was murdered when he, he went out and did several errands before he came back and then was killed. And so that was pretty much that, that day. And in the next day, the Fall River Daily Globe had this to say. The new Bedford man who comes home and finds it deserted need not be alarmed. There has been no elopement. The dear creature is probably in the crowd of morbid females storming the door of the county courthouse. (sighs) And then this, this Dick said, it's Woman's Day because of, quote the multitude of New Bedford's fattest and leanest of the feminine gender at the courthouse. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) They, They like to dig at the people who came to be spectators and I kind of understand it. But at the same time, the media also plays a huge part in engendering this interest. So like they're they're First of all, they're insulting their own customers and their audience probably shouldn't do that. Second of all, This is partly because the media has made such a big deal out of this trial. If they hadn't, then people wouldn't have even known to come, you know? So it feels hypocritical at best, is my thought. And this was interesting because of the placement of the bodies, especially Abby's being in that guest room. The engineer who designed the Borden house had done some line of sight experiments the house trying to see uh, if if Lizzie could have seen Abby's body in the guest room from the stairs. Because remember from uh, part one, she found Andrew murdered. And then it wasn't until a while later that she was like, oh, I think actually Abby might be home. I thought she was away, but now I think she's home. Maybe somebody should check the guest room. And so they checked on that. And they also checked whether Lizzie in the barn could have seen someone entering the house if it had actually been an intruder and even though this engineer was a a witness brought up by the prosecution so ostensibly supposed to support their argument his testimony ended up kind of falling on the defense's side like eh, not so much would have been able to see abby's body body going up the stairs or see somebody going it it, it didn't really seem like it helped the prosecution very much
0: i i want to i want to like pull the architect aside and go w- why why no indoor plumbing why did, <laughs> yeah. you, why did you decide that the shit buckets uh that the family has to go to the toilet in be right underneath the kitchen
1: I okay just, so i just want to
0: know your thought process
1: uh, on the shit buckets how long did we go before that was brought up um, <laughs> pretty good pretty good yeah, not bad not bad, <laughs> not bad. I did actually I'm feeling a little
0: off today, so I didn't bring it up like before the show.
1: <laughs> the, uh, the family, like they went over the timeline of what everybody did that morning and everybody's mentioned that they, they had, you know, like the timeline when, especially when Bridget was talking about it. First thing in the morning, everybody would bring from their bedroom, their slop pail
0: mm. and then empty it
1: out outside. So they also, they did have the privy in the the cellar that was not indoor plumbing, but they also had uh, basically shit buckets in their bedrooms like it was medieval times. <sighs> I mean, I guess it's more convenient.
0: Did you hear what I just <laughs> did there? That's something you couldn't do in the Borden household on a hot summer day. <sighs> 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 Deep breath, yeah. not through the nose.
1: Yeah. Oh, sleeping in the same room with an open, I'm imagining probably open bucket of, of feces and urine no thank you I'll pass that's in the, on, in the summer you're right oh yeah, my gosh yeah Oh, and God. I
0: mean and that summer was an oppressively hot summer
1: and everybody had had food poisoning multiple times after dinner so that slop pail was probably used repeatedly throughout the night it
0: just oh looks my. like a big thing of hot chocolate but it sure doesn't smell like it
1: oh you didn't need to describe it thank
0: you <laughs> so and yet I did you're welcome
1: Yes, you did, didn't you? Yeah. That was my uh, shit bucket update for (laughs) you. (laughs) The first witness from the household, sort of, was John Morse, Lizzie's uncle. But if you remember, he was her mother's brother. So not Abby's brother or Andrew's brother. He gave a detailed account of the 12 hours prior to the murder. There were really no big revelations there. And then witnesses who had seen Andrew on that last errand run also took the stand. And actually, it's interesting because it seems like take the stand was rather literal. They just had everybody stand there in front of the courtroom. Like no actual, you know, like sort of lectern podium sit at deal like they have, like an actual stand in in courthouses. You just go up and you stand here. (laughs) And I would be so uncomfortable.
0: Now I'd like you to spell litigate for me. <laughs> it feels very spelling bee-ish, except with somebody's life on the line. Could
1: you use that in a sentence, please?
0: Pretty please. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, they there was nothing really revealing here either, except I did enjoy that one of the witnesses was a carpenter named Joseph Shortsleeves. Oh, <laughs> I went to. Uh, how many of me.com where they tell you how many people have your name in the country. And there is currently exactly one Joseph short sleeves in the U S and only 129 Mr. Ms. Mrs. Or miss short sleeves. Wow.
0: Okay. Yep. Hold on. I'm going to find this out. How many, how many, uh, Scott Mortz are there? Yes. We want to know. Uh, let's see here. I know there's at least two. Yes, I am 13 years of older, although my IQ isn't. (laughs) Let's see here. And we're doing... Let's see. Uh, Damn it. Come on. My name is Scott. I should
1: have have done this before the show and told you guys. That would have been more fun. I didn't even think about that.
0: (laughs) Right? There are nine people in the United States named Scott Mort.
1: Oh. Amber is currently... uh involved in, in child care. There's an adorable Aww. child on her lap uh, snuggling with her. It's very, very cute. So I'm looking up hers. Uh, there are two people with her name in the U.S. W- one of two. You're almost one of a kind.
0: Damn.
1: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. HowManyOfMe.com is kind of a fun website. I forget how many of me there are. Uh, nope. I typed my own last name wrong. I'm an idiot. So... Yeah, I have looked at this in in the past, but uh there's fourteen of me in the in the US. So.
0: Looking up my wife's name, there <laughs> is uh one or fewer people named Ariana Ooh, Mort. Interesting. One or fewer. You know, none. So she's she's kind of like a Joseph short sleeves. <laughs> exactly. There's just one Ariana Mort. And I could attest to that.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. She's one of a kind and we love her. Yeah. So after those uh, witnesses who'd seen Aaron, Andrew, testify, uh, then Bridget Sullivan takes the stand. And actually she'd been MIA since leaving the Borden house just two days after the murders. Nobody really knew where the hell she'd gone. She'd actually gone to jail, but not in that sense. She was working there and living at the new Bedford jail. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) And the consensus seemed to be that she was dressed pretty well, maybe better than your average servant. So her clothing was kind of commented upon. I did try to find, there were a couple of brief descriptions of her clothing, nothing really descriptive enough that I could find exact prices for it from that time period because I was curious, but I didn't go too deep down that rabbit hole because it was it was hard to actually do that research with the little information I had. I just have to go with their... Reporters saying, hmm, that Van Dyke hat she's wearing with a feather in it must be quite expensive.
0: Oh, I say that's worth two or three nickels.
1: I don't know why I gave New England reporters a English accent, but.
0: uh, Reasons. (laughs) Hoity-toity bastards.
1: Yeah. And she actually, we talked about the whole thing that uh, Emma and Lizzie called her Maggie Uh, After the previous uh, servant in the household, she stated outright, yes, Emma and Lizzie did call me Maggie. No, it didn't bother me. And she didn't say that Andrew and Abby did. So it seemed to be just a thing with the sisters, which definitely makes them, even though she says, no, it doesn't bother me. It definitely makes them come off a a little bitchy. Mm -hmm. And she established that. All right. So there was a whole thing with after the break in. Quote unquote incident from a year prior. They they locked all the doors in the house, inside and out, all the time. And she established that yes, the cellar door was locked from the inside that day. That would have been one point of entry for you know an axe-wielding maniac. The side door, the last she knew, had been locked the previous night, and we know. As far as we are aware, when Andrew came home, the front door was locked because Bridget had to let him in. He was actually struggling with the lock a little bit. And so uh, the question I have there is but did it get relocked? And it's not really clear, but at that point it was probably habit. I want to say it does come up later that the, the spring lock on the front door, there were a couple of locks, but I think there was only that spring lock that they engaged during the day was pretty faulty and people could just come in and out. So <laughs> there is that at least the Ari- locks might not matter at all because one of them was sucky.
0: Ariana has this like thing. She's paranoid about using every single lock that she that's on the door. Right. And I'm not a fan of using, like, the little chain locks that are on the side, right? And it, it was a thing where one day we had left out the front door because I had parked there after work. And then whenever we came in, we came in through the back door. And I opened up the back door, and the she had had the chain thing on. And just the small force that I used to open up the back door ripped it completely off the wall. And it was oh just God. like... Completely useless. It was only there for psychological reasons.
1: <laughs> well, sometimes those are valid, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Might as well locked it with a piece of chewing gum.
1: <laughs> Bridget had last seen Abby uh, dusting in the dining room. And that was the point when Abby said, hey, uh, today I'd like you to wash all the, the windows inside and out. Bridget started doing this and then lizzie said hey uh i'm gonna be around so you don't really need to lock the side door but you can if you want to and then that's pretty much kind of left to lie there and then actually she they made a big point of uh pointing out how she made several trips to the barn for water in order to wash the windows so if a murderer did come and slip in the house while she was doing that he would have had to pick just the right moment like the moment when she's in the barn filling her bucket at that point he would have had to rush in to the house in order to not be seen but at the same time if you're busy doing a task you know it's something rote and routine you're not really paying attention to your surroundings super hard sometimes so that that argument didn't i'm gonna go ahead and say hold water for me
0: Uh,
1: uh, uh. (laughs) sometimes i have to i just can't not
2: (laughs) no it really doesn't hold water though because i i mean like I, i i don't know i guess you could have like that false sense of security but i don't think you're really paying attention unless you think somebody's gonna break into your house you know what i mean like it wasn't a super high crime rate back then she had really nothing to be afraid of so she wouldn't have been like looking to see if like leaves were bent anywhere yeah the year of the the
1: the Borden murders that was one of three in that year so no real reason to be hyper vigilant and constantly glancing at the house just and if you're doing a task that you do all the time you might really daydream and pay absolutely no attention to your surroundings so yeah I don't I don't see it but okay they did make a deal out of that Then Andrew comes home. She lets him in. And then, interestingly, after this, Lizzie is actually, she's pretty focused on the the locks on the doors that day. She tells Bridget, hey, there's a big sale. I might go out and go do a little shopping. So if you go out, make sure you lock up because, you know, my dad will be gone. Abby's out, according to her. And then the house will be empty. So we should definitely lock up. Then it's interesting. I think that she had such a focus, according to Bridget, on making sure the doors were locked. But Bridget was like, she was feeling she was feeling really, really shitty from the food poisoning. She had actually vomited that morning. She just had to rush outside from the kitchen and vomit, probably right after Andrew came by with his slop pail. For you know, no connection to those two incidents, um, and not not one. And so she was like, uh, no, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna go take a nap. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going out and shopping. No matter how cheap the fabric is at that store, I'm, I'm going to go sleep. And then she goes for a nap. And the next thing that happens is Lizzie calls up to her and says, father has been murdered. Uh, she's cross-examined by the defense attorneys. That's when she says, the family was really nice. I didn't mind that the girls called me Maggie. I never saw any sort of conflict or arguing in the family. They were pretty peaceful. Although this was a different story than she told in the aftermath of the murder when she said to a detective's wife that she'd actually tried to leave previously 3 times because of unpleasantness in the house and one time she had to be she had to be given a raise in order to come, be talked into coming back.
0: Boy, I've been there.
1: <laughs> See, I don't I feel like she's not being 100% truthful or enough time has passed that her memory is is faded a little bit and it's not as important for her to to bring it up. I don't really know what I I feel like it's definitely
0: true. Chris, have said. you ever had an uncomfortable job? <laughs>
1: Um, I'm a woman, I have boobs, and yeah. there are, are men in the world, so yes.
0: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Wow, feeling a lot of gender hate coming from you today. No,
1: it's not you. <laughs> uh, it's the guy who walked past me when I was at my first grown-up job, when I was wearing a shirt that said 24 on it, and said, uh, I think that number should be a little bit higher while staring at my chest.
0: That's not funny. It's better to say, huh, 12 apiece. piece.' But anyway,
1: <laughs> it actually—that's oh, funnier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is, that is. But I don't, man. I the, like the 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 tinge the hate of a bad job never leaves you.
1: Yeah, I I I guess I just demonstrated that with uh, right. the description of that guy who blatantly came right out and said that the sexual harassment seminar we went through my very first week of going there was because of him.
0: It's it's never a thing. Like no matter no matter what job I've ever gone to, I've never looked back on my previous jobs and went, "Wow, I really missed that job. Things weren't really that bad there." Yes, they were. That's why you left.
1: Yeah, I guess you don't get kind of those rose-colored glasses about bad jobs. I remember my good jobs with uh, a lot of fondness. I've had some good ones, although you know every job comes with its trials, but. Yeah, I kind of think that Bridget had some reason that she was kind of glossing over any bad things that happened in the household. It could have possibly been maybe out of loyalty to the family, not even necessarily Lizzie, but even just Andrew and Abby feeling that, you know, as a servant – what goes on in the, with the family should be kept private, and it's not her place to tell the world, especially when there are reporters there who will literally tell the world. <laughs> so maybe that played into it? Some sense of propriety? Possibly. I feel like I might have just hit on it there, but I'm not mm, 100% sure. I think you yeah. have. You
0: know
2: what? Hold up. Because she was working at the jail, so maybe she was afraid that Lizzie was going to be- come to the jail and kick her ass. I mean, she was working at the New Bedford
1: jail. Lizzie was at Taunton, so she wasn't at the same jail. But if she did end up getting, uh, if she ended up getting found guilty, maybe she would have ended up at New Bedford. I'm not actually really sure. But it was a jail. They would probably send her to an actual prison. So it's my thought. But Bridget might not know that. So you might be right. Oh, I don't know. It's interesting. It's, It's definitely a question why her story changed. And then uh, the defense did manage to find a tiny little crack in her statements that made it possible that the side door had been left unlocked. It was kind of vague and it was like, oh, well, you know, they, they, they basically got her to admit that maybe the side door had been left unlocked. So there was a possible point of entry for a crazed, axe-wielding maniac. And day three of the trial. Dr. Bowen, the family doctor, if you will recall from the last episode, he was the one that Lizzie made such a scandal with by going to church with him once. (laughs) Exhausting town. Exhausting. I'm tired just thinking about it. So, oh yeah. He comes in. And we had talked about how originally he said that he thought that Abby had died by fright. He denies this. He's like, No, I just thought that she fainted. And I think that he made a point of saying that because maybe he, he got some shit for it after the murder, you know? <laughs> like people were like, Oh, she died of fright, huh? What kind of doctor are you? And he's like, No, how I didn't. How did you miss this? this. <laughs> yeah. But she was laying. I guess she was laying in a position where he couldn't clearly see the blood at first. So who knows? But uh, in, I, I think in the moment, even as a doctor, you know, he probably hadn't seen too many murdered bodies. And in the moment when you see a, a dead body, your brain tries to reconcile it and find some way. This it's woman not has fleas
0: all over the place. And it's- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that was hilarious. Flea. <laughs> the
1: fleas, it's so stupid.
0: It really is.
1: I hate it so much. I hate it. (laughs) Oh, everybody knows it's the Red Wedding. The prosecution is really banging hard on the whole dress thing. Now, Lizzie was reported to have been wearing a blue dress the morning of the murders. And then when she was talking to the police after they were summoned, she was wearing something pink they keep on calling it a wrapper but when i think of a wrapper i think of like a wrap or a shawl but i don't think it was that i think that was actually a style of dress
0: i was thinking of like ice cube
1: (laughs) the prosecution did manage to draw out of some witnesses the possibility that lizzie did have two blue dresses that she wore that day one during the murders and then one that she changed into afterwards so as not to be conspicuous and then changed into the pink thing in the afternoon. And then a neighbor testified and also muddied the waters about the dress. So we really have no clear answers on that. And it does come up again a couple of times. They're really hardcore about this dress. But I understand why. Because it's a big question. If you axe murdered somebody, you're going to be bloody. You know? Yeah. 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 So definitely, I, I get it. It seems like a small detail, but it's pretty huge. Then we have the uh, testimony of Lizzie's BFF, Alice Russell. At this point, they were no longer friends because Russell had finally told the police that Lizzie burned her dress the Sunday after the murders. So after that point, their friendship pretty much ended. And Alice Russell talks about how uh, the night before the murders, Lizzie finally told her about the break-in that had happened previously in the house, and then said, "You know, don't tell anybody because my my dad forbade us from talking about it." Which I didn't know in in the pre- last week. I didn't know that he said don't talk about it. Although I, I guess it makes sense since he pretty much seems to think Lizzie did it, and I'm I'm not going to disagree. <laughs> especially if some light of some stuff that comes up much later.
0: It gets Um, dark. It gets real dark.
1: (laughs) It's so weird. So she had stayed with Lizzie after the murders. And when she said, when Lizzie was going to go burn the dress, she said, Oh, you probably shouldn't do that. And then the next day, the Pinkerton, the girls had hired was asking about Lizzie's dresses. And Alice was like, I knew that was a bad thing to do. She lied to the Pinkerton. She lied at the inquest. She lied at the grand jury. And then finally she returned to the grand jury because she was like having sleepless nights over not telling the truth about this dress. And she told them the truth. And there is yet more dress stuff to come. Don't you worry.
0: It's like (laughs) the Clinton impeachment all over again.
1: Yeah. And then Marshall Hilliard, one of the, the law enforcement in Fall River, uh, revealed that he thought Abby's blood was coagulated and dark, while Andrew's blood appeared freshly spilt. Then we have Assistant Marshal Fleet on the scene. He, he had been on the scene and he says, it, This I found interesting. He's like, I went to Lizzie's room in the aftermath, and Lizzie and Dr. Bowen were shut up in there together when he knocked on the door because they wanted to search the room. Bowen only opened the door like six inches and then closed it. But then it was only a minute or two later that he opened it up and let them into search. Later on, it's explained as, well, yes, we have this woman whose parents were just murdered and there's a house full of strange men, not only police, but also reporters who would just open the door whenever they felt like it. So, yeah, we locked the door. I mean, that makes perfect
0: sense, doesn't it?
1: It really does. I would do the same thing if, you know, I needed... To get away from this and he's, you know, close to the family and is also a doctor. So if she has any medical needs, because he also would later prescribe her morphine for sleeping and everything. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. I, I totally get it. At first, it does seem scandalous, though. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn.
0: We love podcasting.
2: We absolutely do. And that's why we love Podcorn. If you haven't heard about Podcorn, it's an amazing platform that connects podcasters like us to brands that can sponsor us. All you have to do is surf through all the available sponsorships, find the ones that are
1: right for you, and make your proposal.
0: And what's great is that you can write your proposal or record it so potential sponsors can hear your voice and delivery and get an idea of what your sponsorship might sound like.
1: What's even more fun is that we're running our own campaign on Podcorn, sponsoring other podcasts. It's been so amazing to see it from the other side, and we've connected with so many fantastic
2: podcasters. Click the link in our show notes to sign up to Podcorn and start browsing sponsorship opportunities today.
1: Now, Fleet said that he had looked through the clothes like Lizzie's Emma's clothes before Sunday and he had not seen a dress stained with paint because remember that was her excuse for burning the dress. But then they bring up his testimony from the inquest, which was contradictory and seemed to imply that he just glanced at the dresses and then moved on with his life. This was generally considered a bad day of the trial for Lizzie. The next day, we find out that uh, from one of the reporters who did a little digging that the police, those are the members of the police force who had helped to compile evidence against Lizzie, all seem to have risen in the ranks mysteriously in the less than a year since the murders. That Everybody is, got promotions.
0: That is so strange how that worked. Really weird. Nothing suspect about that at all.
1: Not at all. So that means that the captain... Philip Harrington, who testified on day four, had been a patrolman the day he responded to the murders 10 months prior.
0: Patrolman to captain.
1: Yeah, patrolman to captain. 10 months. 10 months, 10 months. Yep, he's on the fast track. He is going places, and the place he is going apparently is to like a fashion blog because this is a really interesting moment. He described the pink dress that Lizzie was wearing that afternoon in such detail that people were actually astonished because he's going into like technical descriptions of the fabric and the cut and the bias and all these really technical terms and Lizzie is actually this is kind of she's she finds this hilarious she's hiding her face and her shoulders are shaking as he's describing her clothing and then finally she just lets it all out and bursts out laughing she's just this is too funny to her that's great like he was going to such detail that people were like were you a tailor like before this i picture him
0: gently (laughs) caressing his chest as he's describing (laughs) like the bodice of everything and like his hands like gently like play amongst his his waist as he's describing like the, draw st- the drawstring corset of the, of the thing, and then he gets to like the like the panties, and it just it, things go south real quick.
1: Yeah, in more ways than one.
0: I so, think he should have been born a woman.
1: One theory actually about this was that this was not necessarily just off the cuff. <laughs> one
0: thing I see what oh, you yeah. did there.
1: I didn't even see it until now. God damn it! Um, one th- the theory was that this was you know, kind of pre written material for him to deliver. I found that an interesting theory. Mm. And we talked about the scraps of paper that Dr. Bowen had burned. And there does seem to be the implication that that happened and that if it did, it was, that paper was actually used to wrap up the broken axe handle when they burned it in the stove. That's never really made explicit, but they do imply it so that it's it's on everyone's mind. So that's curious. Then we get to Fleet, uh, Assistant Marshal Fleet, talking about the hatchet. He talks about the part of the hatchet where the handle had broken off, and he says, oh, it's a clean break, but Then his testimony goes back and forth and back and forth. And he insists that he never found the handle. And then, now keeping in mind, they didn't, and in many cases, they still don't. It it makes perfect sense. They didn't and don't allow people who are going to be on the witness stand in the courtroom when other people are on the witness stand. You don't want that testimony to be tainted. So Fleet was out of the room when a patrolman who was there when Fleet found the hatchet testified that oh yeah we were looking through this box and we found that the head of the the hatchet and then there was the handle right there in the box and fleet picked it up and then he put it back <laughs> And everybody was like whoa wait because that whole idea of the hatchet being the murder weapon a lot of that hinged on the broken handle having been disposed of because it was covered in blood and you couldn't
0: remove that easily he uh He made sure to get his fingerprints all up and down it, uh, and then he licked it a couple of times. Yeah,
1: peed on it.
0: (laughs) Handed it around, passed it around his church. Made sure everybody in the community really had a good feel. Said it would help gather evidence. Yeah.
1: They bring Fleet back in and have him come back to the stand. And remember, he doesn't know the patrolman said this, so this is a big moment for the defense and he insists that he never saw the handle, but this whole thing did blow up the Commonwealth's case because if this happened, the hatchet was just another hatchet. The handle had been disposed of for other reasons, not because it was covered in blood. There's no real reason to think of that as the murder weapon. And they didn't really have another one that they had, you know, another ax or hatchet from the household that had, they had good reason to believe was the murder weapon and then it's it's seriously it's just such a mess because later another patrolman would testify that he found the hatchet head (laughs) like what the hell everybody wants to find the hatchet head
0: well i mean it makes sense everybody wants to be the popular one
1: yeah true the rest of the witnesses that day are really nothing to write home about and the reporters, they're starting, to, they're starting to feel that it's a hot, hot summer day, and they're starting to feel the heat, and they're getting kind of, you know how you get kind of irritated when it's been too hot for too long, and you just got to let loose with your inner bitch? Oh, yeah, and well, they, like the,
0: you're wearing like, you know, this is not breathable fabric. This is not modern day clothing, and they're all in multi-layer suits. I bet these guys and women were just making their own gravy in their pants. It was
1: supposed to be very hot and uncomfortable. Everybody commented on it in that courtroom. So the reporters need to just really let loose. And so they decide that their target will be, of course, the women attending the trial. An example of one such uh, moment of snarkiness, quote, In bonnets, yellow was the predominant color, and it held its own, too, as far as complexions went.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: That actually sounds like it should be racist, but I do think they were just saying that these are like sallow faced women.
0: <laughs> like, I, I hate I, these people. I hate but, I hate everybody in history. I'm was, was there was there a good people in history? I don't think there
1: were. There have to somewhere, some someplace. We've talked about several of them. We've talked about some. Julie Dubny comes to mind. I mean she committed some crimes, but she was also just okay. Awesome.
0: Burn down a convent. Yeah, but still awesome. For love. Somehow. For oh, love. love. I do it and all of a sudden it's a hate crime. <laughs> the
1: hatchet start it gets a nickname. It starts to be called the Hoodoo Hatchet. God damn it. Because it's said to be playing pranks on the prosecution by chopping up their
0: case double goddamn it
1: as for the handle it's never found but it is looked for and then it's unclear who is able to look for it because a, a policeman does testify that yes uh after this whole big you know revelation about the handle i went to the borden house to look for it but uh, I wasn't allowed in, and then that's kind of just allowed to drop. And then somebody else on on Lizzie's side was there. Uh, honestly, can't remember who because I didn't put this in my notes. But somebody was else was there looking for the handle. I'm sure if they had found it, they would have come forward because if they're on Lizzie's side, they're they're helping. But who knows? Maybe they weren't on Lizzie's side. Maybe they maybe it was the murderer and they wanted uh, her to go
0: down. So I don't know. In my opinion, nobody was on Lizzie's side except for Lizzie. Everybody else was on their side.
1: Well, I don't know. It kind of feels like she actually has a lot of people on her side, just from my reading of it. It feels like the reporters rather like her and her attorneys like her, although eventually they'll they'll kind of break with her after the trial. And the people seem to be cheering for her. And even we'll find out the judges have some feelings. So it's it's really interesting. But the defense, their strategy was basically, do you see the Commonwealth's case? It's all holes. They're going to poke and poke and poke at all these holes and all the, the contradictions of the witnesses. And they do a lot of this through cross-examinations. So, for example, the prosecution said given the the time of death and everything, that it was probably between 8 and 13 minutes from when Lizzie murdered Andrew to when she called Bridget down. And the defense made sure to point out that, okay, so in that 8 to 13 minutes, she changed her dress or tried to wash blood off of it and then hit it, washed blood off of her body, her face. You know, I'm sure somebody would have gotten on her hands, even if she was wearing long sleeves, which hopefully in August she wouldn't be, (laughs) washed, you know, cleaned up and hid the murder weapon somewhere that nobody could find it in 8 to 13 minutes. They're like, um, did she somehow become the Flash?
0: Ooh, good DC reference.
1: Thank you. It just came to me. You're
0: welcome. (laughs) Ezra, uh, Ezra Miller or Grant Gustin?
1: Um... I remember a cartoon in the 90s I used to watch. What was that?
0: (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) There was a cartoon in the 90s?
1: I really feel like there was a Flash cartoon in the 90s that I watched.
0: There was a a live-action TV series in the 90s.
1: Okay, then it was that.
0: (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So So I got to say, then Grant Gustin, by association, because the actor that played the Flash in the 90s, Plays the Flash's father in the TV, TV series, which is Grant Gustin.
1: Oh, okay, cool. Well, now I know what side I'm on, apparently.
0: Uh, apparently, Amber likes Ezra Miller. Uh, just, What's wrong with you, Amber? <laughs> that's not the right answer.
2: No, he's the answer in so many crossword puzzles, though.
0: Ezra Miller? <laughs> yeah, because Ezra. Sense.
2: Yes, yes. That's, that's why it immediately was like, nope, that one, because I use it in crossword puzzles all the time.
0: Nice. I really, I think my favorite Ezra Miller movie was the one where he picked up one of his fans by the neck and began to choke her.
1: Okay, then. <laughs> the prosecution also pointed at stuff like a uh, policemen who testified, a, a policeman testified that, yeah, I helped search through the girls' dresses and I didn't see a single blue dress. And meanwhile, between Lizzie and Emma, they had ten.
0: And I saw oh. I saw so many Is panties he though. <laughs>
1: yeah. Hey, maybe that's oh, a good point.
0: Oh no, I just saw so many panties there. Just dresses, <laughs> no dresses whatsoever. There were some panties that were flea-stained. tee I
1: think we were still in pantaloons
2: then. Maybe pantaloons. I, don't know. I was gonna say they it wasn't panties yet. I, don't, I think it was like the weird pantaloons and bloomers. Pantaloons. Ah, yes, bloomers.
0: Bloomers. that's disgusting
1: a a big a big point of contention in the trial became the lizzie's words during the inquest because remember the district attorney basically called that her confession and he really wanted that to be able to be brought in as evidence but the judges were like well her testimony was kind of involuntary at the inquest and she didn't really have an attorney at the time. So probably not a great idea to bring in involuntary words when she didn't have any representation. And the defense was like, Oh, by the way, also, dr bowen had given her that morphine to help her sleep so her head might have been a little muddled at the time and then also there was the strong implication that because she was a woman her testimony was erratic anyhow so just it's useless that makes
0: sense (laughs) now i'm not really like this i'm not really like this people He's not a sexist. He just plays one on this podcast. I, I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. I, I, th- I, I think I play the sexist because I, I think it's hilarious in a weird sort of way. Just, and because you're outnumbered. <laughs> uh, well, not even that. Out, Amber will tell you outnumbering means nothing to me. Um, but I think it's kind of funny to just kind of like, I, it's such an archaic thing to like, well, your gender's different. So you can't do this better. Your tits get in the way. What a fucking ridiculous notion.
1: Agreed. Fully agreed. It is stupid. (laughs) So, but they're I guess they're trying to use this. The defense is trying to use this in Lizzie's favor, so I guess they're making a positive out of it, kind of. It's still insulting as all hell. Some people also thought that in the in the overall timeline. Bridget Sullivan was just a little bit too active. She supposedly had led the police to the box that they found the hatchet head in. And yet not a lot of attention was being paid to her having been a person in the house when the murders happened. They, you know, looked at Emma's and Lizzie's clothes, but they just, you know, didn't really bother too much with hers. Just a cursory glance, I guess. There was there were some questions there about why didn't why wasn't Bridget looked at more closely? Next came the medical testimony, and this I find really, really interesting. Abby, according to the the times of death that were established, was killed 90 minutes to two hours before Andrew. So if that's if that's the case, and if Lizzie did this, she managed to draw no suspicion, from Bridget during the 90 minutes to two hours in between murdering her stepmother and then murdering her own father and also had somehow managed to murder Abby without needing to change her clothes yet because there's only one change of clothes before the police arrive. There's only the two blue dresses. So she had interactions with uh, uh, with Bridget, I do believe. it's It's just weird. It's so weird.
0: I don't get it. Very.
1: It doesn't fit. They're in it together. That is definitely a theory that we'll get into. And I I think this it has some strong points in its favor. But yeah, it's 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 so weird. And I just to act for her to for Lizzie to act so normal according to Bridget during that period. It, it feels like either she had to have been an, an actual legit sociopath or not the murderer. So the medical examiner had made, uh, well, okay. So first he, like we said, there were the, the the skulls, the heads. He took the heads off and then he boiled off the flesh and in the, possibly the most uh, macabre new England moment probably boiled them in the family lobster pots.
0: Yes! <laughs> yes! You know he was tempted to make a nice stock out of them.
1: It's these details that keep you listeners coming back for more, isn't it? <laughs> it's
0: beautiful. It's fucking beautiful. Boiling,
1: boiling heads of murder victims in a lobster pot. Like, I'm, I'm like sorry, another... there,
0: there's, something, there's something about a guy who would plop the severed skulls of a of a probably innocent woman's mother and father in front of her, in court on one of the hottest days of the year. There's something about that type of person that you would go, yeah, they'd use the lobster pots, and then it's not well, that far of a leap to go, yeah, they'd use it to make soup.
1: Well, it was the the, the district attorney who was the one who plopped out the the heads, I believe. Whereas it would be the medical examiner who boiled the heads. The words I love to say. Just they are. They're right a
0: there. bunch of sick fucks, is what I'm saying.
1: Well, you're not. You're not wrong. It's it's kind of ridiculous, but also it's it would be more science-y if not for the lobster pots. But it's still kind of sciency in its way. <laughs> uh, the medical examiner made plaster casts of the heads prior to boiling off the flesh, and they brought these in to show the wounds to the jury. So Andrew had 10 wounds, some as small as two inches, others as big as four and a half inches long, four of these penetrated bone. And there are pictures of these skulls and it's, yeah, I can't blame her for fainting at all. Uh, Abby had 18 head wounds, so there was some more rage directed towards her, I believe. 13 of those went through the skull. So, yeah, there was some more rage directed towards her. These were uh, ranged from one and a half to five and a half inches. Now, the hoodoo hatchet, as they called it, is only three and a half inches long. So there's some question as to how it would have made wounds of these much larger sizes.
0: And yeah, go ahead. Okay, if you're you're thinking like people are thinking like that blade is going to be coming down straight across. But if you kind of hit it at an angle, then you're not talking about like one edge or the other. You're talking about the fucking hypotenuse.
1: Yeah. And maybe there could be some slippage. Yeah. Especially on more uh, shallow wounds. So yeah, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it necessarily rules out the hoodoo hatchet being the murder weapon, but blood spatter yeah, it would have been an issue for the murderer because Andrew had both arteries in his head cut and if the temporal artery was was cut a certain way, it would have spurted two to three feet. And oh, I just made myself stick to the stomach. It's funny that I have such an issue with blood and the true crime, two true crime podcasts. Right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Amber doesn't uh, have an issue with blood.
1: Not at all. No, she doesn't. No. And so, yeah, it's definitely – it it definitely – the blood spatter issue can go a couple of different ways because you can say, well, the fact that there would have been so much blood spatter and yet you never found a blood spattered dress and all of that sort of really implies that maybe Lizzie wasn't the murderer. But then also somebody murdered them and got blood spatter on them. And then also possibly took the murder weapon with them. So was this person wandering the streets of fall river covered in blood, carrying an ax <laughs> like in the immediate aftermath. So that is definitely a question raised, but I say, you know, could have run in there, there. There were wooded areas. There were orchards and stuff. It's not like they swept the orchards looking for, you know, someone in the immediate aftermath could have hidden there for a little while, I, I i don't think it really defines anything one way or the other. it doesn't give us any yeses or nos
0: yeah it's i think people people tend to people tend to look the other way and I really think that yeah you could probably walk down the street of Johnstown covered in blood <laughs> and I think that you could probably get away with it uh, well yeah, i'm ninety nine percent certain you could. <laughs> Amber wants to test this out. I mean, we uh, could. We could. I mean, hell, the other day. Well, this was not the other day, but I mean, this was a couple of weeks ago. I saw a guy walking in the streets with a samurai sword and a football helmet. Yeah, I just they let
2: called the cops on him.
0: They did call the cops on him. I didn't.
1: I feel <laughs> like it's a definitely a false equivalence to from johnstown to in current day to Fall River in the 1890s if we simply point to the example of everybody being scandalized by Lizzie going to church with the family doctor. Yeah. I mean, definitely in that kind of town in that kind of time period, somebody covered in blood. It's not like it's, you know, Whitechapel with all the butcher shops where you could get away with it by being like, this is my job, <laughs> you know? Well, were there any butcher shops there?
0: I'm I'm sure there had to be.
1: I'm sure there had to be, but it wasn't a a big central hub of them like like was near Whitechapel and uh, probably not directly in that neighborhood. It was a it was a decent neighborhood. It wasn't, you know, like you had not that these are bad neighborhoods, but it wasn't like you had all these businesses and houses stacked up right next to each other. So I still think that there weren't enough butcher shops in the immediate vicinity for somebody to be walking around covered in blood and everybody just being like, oh, yeah, that's that's Tim the Butcher.
2: This is you know, normal. That's what he does on Tuesdays.
1: Yeah, it definitely seemed like it would have been out of the ordinary. So, yeah, I don't feel like that that the blood spatter rules anything in or out, which is just one of the many things in this trial that is so murky. And. OK, so this is mentioned in Kara Robertson's book that the trial of Lizzie Borden. Uh, I, I will admit to being guilty of sometimes skimming, especially when the author flat out admits that the, the testimony that was to come was not particularly of note or interesting. I'm like, okay, I can turn that page. Um, but I, they block they brought in the bloodstained sofa that Andrew was found in. And it was actually like under like a piece of cloth draped over it out in the, you know, like, I don't know, or whatever.
2: Hold up. Yeah. Yeah. So they draped the sofa in cloth, but then brought in, heads. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Well, I just the, wanted to make that clear.
1: When they first brought the sofa in, it wasn't directly in the courtroom. It was in like the big like vestibule area. I don't know what to call it. Um so it it, it was definitely subject to passersby and, and and interested onlookers being able to lift up the cloth and look at and touch the sofa because they did
2: okay i was gonna say i was actually really hoping that people sat on it thinking it was like grandma's house and she just covered the furniture (laughs) that would be
0: absolutely beautiful so they bring it
2: in and all these women go
0: oh no this is this (laughs) is such a comfy couch and it's so crunchy
1: (laughs) yeah so i i Maybe they brought that in at some point, and I just don't feel that it was ever really important. It seems like frequently they would bring in people to testify to things and items that didn't really end up being of true importance, you know? So I actually am going to try to look that up if my Chromebook ever starts up. But Lizzie, actually, this medical testimony really fascinated her, although... One reporter noted that her stance on the medical testimony seemed to be different depending on whether it was the prosecution or the defense attorneys asking the questions of the experts. When it was the prosecution, she actually would, like, hide her face, like, behind her, her hands or her fan. And when it was her, her attorneys cross-examining, she would sit there in just absolute rapt fascination. So it's definitely her reactions are are interesting, although sometimes they might it's but you know definitely what,
2: like how the hell would you react if you were on trial for murder? Whether you did it or not, you're gonna probably react negatively for the people trying to put you in jail and positively for the people trying to keep you out of it. As I feel like I would. Yeah, right. Yeah, I feel they read a lot
1: more into her reactions without really thinking thinking about the emotional reasons behind them.
2: You'd think the woman doesn't want to go to jail. Well, duh. Yeah, you'd almost think she wants to be free for the rest of her life.
1: Yeah, imagine that.
2: Silly woman.
0: What Ah. woman wouldn't want to be taken care of in a spacious cell of eight by eight feet?
1: Now, I, I will say that when they examine... The actual skulls when the, you know, the, they have the medical experts up there and the defense attorneys are like matching the, you know, showing off the, the particular wounds on the skulls and they're matching up the, the hatchet with all that. They do take Lizzie out of the room because she definitely can't handle that if she couldn't handle it the first time she saw them and I can't blame her and I'm glad they did that. But uh, yeah, so they're, they're definitely still going pretty hardcore with the, they're still using, even though it's, it's kind of been blown up as a possible murder weapon, or at least become seriously questionable. They're still using the hoodoo hatchet in this case, because they don't really have another possible murder weapon. So it's all they have to go on as far as the prosecution is concerned. So the tiny, there was a, a tiny spot of blood on her underskirt. And that had been sent off to be looked at. And it was so tiny that it was 1 forty third of an inch. This was a pinprick of
0: blood. Could have been fleas. It could have been an actual flea. <laughs>
1: it could have been an actual flea. Like literal, not even like figurative.
0: Right. N- oh, God. No, no innuendo here. It could have been an actual flea.
1: And as far as that's concerned, they did establish that they couldn't exclude menstrual blood from being responsible for that flea. Um, but they, uh, the thing was, is that because of the standards of propriety at the time, I guess, and what was proper to talk about in public, no one would really look directly at that possibility or the that of the uh bloody rags found in the basement that it was said well oh those were because she was having her period they wouldn't really look at that one way or the other, they, they always tried to kind of sidestep it and find their way around it and not look directly at it because it was you know polite society and also you have this courtroom full of women and god forbid we can't talk about the exact thing they experience every single month in front of them
0: I don't trust anything that bleeds for five days and doesn't days die, and
1: doesn't die. <sighs> You think I didn't hear that when I was 16? Yeah. <laughs> Actually, just, from... Uh, you're a
0: woman, so you need to be reminded every once in a while. <laughs> it
1: was from a, a good friend uh, who, was, who was gay, so he, he, he really lived up to his
0: word. <laughs> <laughs> Are you willing to suck a dick to, to make this work, Scott? No, I'm not. No, I'm not. No. I just realized more than half the world sucks dick.
1: Yeah, yeah, you're not wrong. Then the prussic acid that Lizzie had supposedly tried to buy from the druggist, there's some testimony about that. Again, it's weak, just like it was in the inquest. And then on June 15th, after eight days of witnesses, the prosecution rested. But because of all these little legal scuffles over what they could and couldn't bring into the courtroom, it wasn't really a good ending for them because they had the previous day, they had a witness that they brought in and they didn't expect that to be the last witness that the jury heard because they expected to be able to bring in more evidence, but the judges put the kibosh on that. So the last witnesses that the jury heard were not really impressive or terribly helpful towards their case. And you want to, you want to start and end your case on a high note it's called primacy and recency. I've been out of the classroom for too long, so now I'm teaching people. But people remember best the things that they hear first and the things that they hear last. Those two things, your most powerful points.
0: It was kind, and of, it th- was kind of said that the same thing was said in, in uh, music co- college. You want a strong start. You want a strong finish to your song. But if you mess up playing in the middle, just keep going. Start strong and strong. That's all anybody ever remembers.
1: I have always, uh, I I played violin for like, from like third grade to my senior year in high school and I still have a violin and and pull it out from time to time. But I have always been the worst at just glossing over mistakes. No, I want everybody to to stop and go back so I can do it right. (laughs) I don't like having messed something up. I'm terrible at it. It always hurt a little bit of my soul every time I had to keep going after making a mistake. I wanted to say, hey, wait, I messed that up. Can we go back? <laughs> but no, no. Apparently I need to do that on my own time.
0: There, there is there is <laughs> no mistake in the world, big enough, that you have to stop for it.
1: Yes, that is very true. Uh, yes, I do that when driving. I've
0: hit seven or eight people now, and I never oh, stop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the prosecution's case is over, except for their their final statements. So it's now the defense's turn. And they are going to do their thing. So they start with anyone who saw or heard anything weird in the neighborhood in the lead up to the murders. So weird sounds. There were several sightings of men lurking or even sleeping in the area. Just like on the sidewalk, I guess. And one... Who said that possibly around two months before the murders, she saw a man arguing with Andrew Borden and overheard the man arguing say, you have cheated me and I'll fix you. But the judge, they actually don't allow this testimony in because they feel it was, you know, she was like, ah, it was probably around two months ago and... They're like, eh, that's too far away chronologically. Nobody can hold a grudge for longer than two
0: months.
2: They've never met me.
0: I've been working on one for about <laughs> six years now. I swear I, to God, I will see that man in a grave.
2: I've,
1: I've got, a, I've got a couple actually. <laughs> so,
0: tell so us yeah. more about your evil grudges.
1: <laughs> no, never.
0: <laughs> I'm in trouble, Amber.
1: Yeah, it's not you. If it is,
0: you'll know. Yeah, this whole thing is this whole podcast has been an elaborate scheme to get back at some some wrong I did, either real or imagined, ten or fifteen years ago.
2: He always knows where you are.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah. So yeah, the defense is bringing these people in, but some of them aren't allowed to testify. There's also, again, like I said, this is when we get the suggestion that the front door lock is faulty because the day of the murders in the aftermath, when there were like policemen and reporters coming into the house and there were reporters from multiple papers present in the house that day, especially local there, they were just able to just walk on in. That spring lock on the front door seemed to be not so secure.
0: Surprise, surprise.
1: Keeps no one out. I have to say that the defense really does a great job of introducing reasonable doubt here. They really, they really do. This actually, this first day of defense testimony, I love this. It was such a good day that Robinson, remember, he's the former governor called the image maker. He had worn a nice brand new pair of trousers that day. It was everything went so well that they were like, "Well, those are what you're wearing for the rest of the entire trial because uh, that was our good luck charm
0: and ruined them."
1: Yeah, yeah, but I just found that so hilarious that apparently trial attorneys are uh, just as superstitious as sports fans (laughs) and poker
2: players.
0: Oh Oh my god, you would know, wouldn't you, Amber?
2: I would know. (laughs) Yeah, you would. So. An interesting
1: thing happened that very afternoon. A boy was climbing on the roof of a barn to retrieve a ball. And they've been, you know, playing a little ball in a, in a field. And he found on the roof of the barn a hatchet. Boom, bum,
2: bum.
0: Very bum, bum, bum.
2: That's a and weird
0: place to hide a murder uh, item.
2: I know. It's a real quick way to get rid of something. Just chuck it, chuck it in the bucket. Bucket. It really depends
1: on how tall that barn is, and barns tend to be pretty tall. They're not. It's it's not a shed. It's a barn. You really got to have good. You know, throwing that that high a hatchet. I
2: I don't know. So somebody threw
0: it up there. That's a fucking toss. You don't want to mess up.
2: Yeah, right. But you know what? If you have enough strength to deliver like 30 wax, I'm pretty sure you have enough to chuck it onto a roof. Yeah.
1: Or were your arms really tired after delivering those 30 wax, too tired to chuck it up under a roof because you were a lady of leisure. And that was a lot of exertion like exertion on your part. So I don't know. But two points here. That barn was very close to the Borden property. It was actually in an orchard behind the Borden property. And it was that the, the actual blade was said to be gilt colored, which indicated it was likely new before it had been tossed or placed on the roof of the barn. And in one of Abby's wounds, they had found a material of a similar color. It was kind of gilt colored as well. So that definitely raised some questions. As far as that, but they never were able to more directly tie it to the murders beyond those possible relationships. Emma, Lizzie's sister, testifies. And (laughs) remember in episode one of this Lizzie Borden thing? We talked about how the matron of the jail had said that when Emma visited Lizzie one day, they had an argument about Emma telling their lawyers too much. And Emma's like, never happened, basically. And there is so much more that goes on with that. But it is a lot of minute, like complete minutia. And it's just it, it's too much (laughs) like the matron has her thing and then there's a marshal who may or may not have asked her to like swear an affidavit and somebody may have asked her to shut up and it's just a whole thing that it's just too much to go into for a conversation that may or may not have meant anything so not getting into that but she did go to bat against the idea that lizzie was had committed these murders for money because she said she didn't need to. She had $2,811 in the bank, which is about $83,000 in today's money, plus shares in some fairly stable local companies. So didn't really need to go killing her, her, her parents for the money and explained away the whole dress burning by saying, well, that was actually my idea. Lizzie was trying to hang up a dress in the closet and it wasn't like hangers. Like we think of it was, there was hooks on the wall and there wasn't a free hook for her to hang up this good dress. So I was like, Oh, what about that? The paint stained blue dress. Why don't you just burn that and free up a hook? And so she went ahead and and did that, but there was, this wasn't really the prosecution could have done a little bit more with this because Immediately my thought it was because anytime I try to get rid of an item of clothing that I'm not donating, if it's like too crappy to donate, my, my pack rat of a husband snatches it and runs away laughing maniacally to his dragon horde of rags.
0: <laughs> dragon horde?
1: Dragons have hordes, but they usually choose shiny things. That's why that's why people go to kill dragons, is because they want the jewels.
2: I yeah, dragons not- always have well. treasure.
1: Also, also the the dragons are probably breathing fire and killing everybody. But there's 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 jewels too. So mostly treasure, uh, yeah. But but his 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 is rags among other things. But yeah, he he, we cannot let something go unless it could be good as a rag. He does examine things. He's like, oh, not really absorbent because I'm a woman, so therefore I'm only well allowed to wear like ten percent cotton apparently.
2: We <laughs> have clothes. We really do. We have what? The worst clothes. I know it's like he can walk
1: into any store and buy a like a hundred percent cotton sweater for $10. And every single sweater I find is like 90% polyester, which is a terrible fabric that I hate touching. Anyhow. But yeah. So the fact that, all right. So think about Andrew Borden grew up kind of on the poor side. Father was a fish peddler did, you know, manage to make his wealth, but he was known as a thrifty dude. And it wasn't like Abby had grown up wealthy. She was seen as possibly beneath him. They would have a rag bag in that house. Oh, I'm sure. So why not use the blue dress in the rag bag? But it,
2: you would it have ex- made that pads for your next fleas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. Your flea rags horrible episode subtitle I, i'm horrible.
1: disturbed
0: by all of this
1: <laughs> i oh. wish i hadn't said it i regretted saying many things on this podcast but that's in the top 10
0: wow yeah
1: flea <laughs> oh i hate it so much i hate it stop <laughs> saying it <laughs> i will say it um, more <laughs> i won't make it the episode title but yeah like there was the idea of, oh, well, maybe she sat down and and cut up some pieces that would be okay, but a lot of it was paint stained, so like they they wouldn't have been great for being rags to like absorb things, so I don't know, but it was just kind of odd that it, it didn't even get brought up. Even the defense, or sorry, the prosecution wasn't like, hey, well, why didn't you save it for rags, because you're in a, a thrifty family, but then again, also, uh, the person who had been the thriftiest in the household was not alive anymore, so there was that
0: Lord Maybe. knows like my mother was thrifty too we reused christmas wrapping paper
1: Oh wow well, yeah I've heard of families doing yeah. that yeah
0: Christmas morning Christmas morning everybody uh everybody over the age of 3 got a very sharp knife and you had to very carefully cut the scotch tape and uh I remember I remember uh I finally like fi- like I was using I was getting gifts wrapped in wrapping paper like that I had gotten 30 years ago. Wow. And it was just finally like one year, one year, like the wrapping paper is just falling apart. And I went, can we just tear this up? And my mom <laughs> went, no. And I did it anyway. And it was glorious. It and was, I bet your... It was like busting a hymen. It was just great. Oh,
1: God. <laughs> I bet your family had a rag bag, too.
0: Yeah, we did.
1: Yep. There are a few more witnesses brought to contradict stuff established by the prosecution's case, and then the defense rested. Now, it was a Friday. Closing statements were left for the beginning of the following week. Everybody has their weekend. Monday comes. Of course, the courthouse is absolutely mobbed by all these fat, skinny, yellow, sallow, complexioned women of morbid curiosity. You know, I'm sure they found as many insults as they could to throw at them. And so closing statements begin. And these closing statements, actually, they'll last longer than one day. So there's a lot of talking and I don't know how people had the patience. But an interesting note that's brought up by the prosecution that I hadn't really put too much thought in was so lizzie had stated that abby originally she was like oh abby wasn't home she got a note summoning her to the bedside of a sick friend but never nobody ever found that note but not only that the person who wrote that note the person who was ill none of those people came forward i mean the ill person could have died but if there were people around them somebody to write the note maybe or deliver the note it's weird and it's definitely a big hole in Lizzie's case, I think. The judges have further commentary. Uh, okay. It definitely seems like they're given a lot more leeway to direct and instruct the jury than happens in today's cases. We've seen this in several British cases, but I haven't seen it too much on uh, you know this side of the pond. But they definitely, the one who gives the jury instructions, he really is falling pretty heavily on Lizzie's side of the fence. So much so that one of the reporters was like, you know, you, you could have been her defense attorney and probably made better money.
0: Yeah.
2: What do you know? How much do judges get paid?
1: Oh, I don't know. But uh, they, they, they got, the, the lawyers made a, a lot. I had it somewhere and I don't know why it's not in my notes anymore, but... Um, Now, I could be totally wrong on this, but I think I'm pretty close. I believe that it's two of the attorneys, the defense attorneys got 10,000 and for their stipend kind of it was kind of a flat fee. And the third one, Robinson, he was a a bit of a bigger name. And so he was able to uh, require 15,000. I'm pretty sure I'm on it with those numbers. And I will tell you in a moment. I can't believe that's not in my notes because I swear to God I had it 1893. Uh, the 10,000 would be nearly 300,000 today. So there you go. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But she, she had to despair. She had that, you know, all that. Oh wait, no 10, it was 10,000. She had 2,800 in the bank. My brain is conflating, uh, the money today versus what she actually had, but yeah, the, the state had it to give. And if, if they could, you know, get her a, a not guilty, then she'd have that money to give them. So they had probably, you know. So. And. The. Deliberation happens. And this is fun because it's a, an hour and a half of deliberation. And it's pretty much exactly. It's exactly what we think. Minus the cigars, because they go in and the. The. they're like okay let's take a quick vote just to see where we all stand initially and initially it is unanimous not guilty so they all sit around and they're like all right well it's been one and a half minutes so um why don't we spend some time talking about the case just to basically because they were like the defense attorney worked really hard we should pretend (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that were giving all this credence. They talk for an hour about the case. They take another vote. They're still all unanimous, not guilty. And then half an hour, they wait another half an hour just so it's not super embarrassing for the district attorney. <laughs> like, they're like, really, like, they feel bad for the poor guy. He was pretty, known to be pretty decent at his job, but they, they really weren't, you know, uh, considering his side of the case as being particularly swaying so they come out the foreman is asked for the verdict before that question is even finished being asked he yells out not guilty (gasps) like he won't even let them finish (laughs) and i liked this moment it was it was it was amusing to me so everyone in the courtroom responds to this everybody yells and it's uh generally because people seem to be on this side it is a cheer everybody there's a a a kind of a, a delay And then everybody outside all of a sudden cheers once they hear the cheers from inside. It's kind of like when you have TVs in separate rooms and one is – they're on the same channel, but one is like 10 seconds ahead of the other one. Nope. Nobody else has tried to watch a hockey game when their little sister is in the next room watching Uh, the same hockey game and uh, cheers loudly every time their team scores a goal.
0: I've I've, – I haven't had a TV in my house for, for ages. Even whenever I worked for the cable company and got free television, I barely <laughs> ever watched it. So having two on at the same time is like an alien fucking concept to me.
1: It wasn't even at my house. It was at my mom's house. Oh. Um, and we were in the living room and my sister was in her bedroom and we were watching the same hockey game, but her TV was like 10 seconds ahead for some reason. So we got kind of spoiler every time the peng- we were watching you know, a Penguins hockey game, every time the Pens scored because we would hear her cheer (laughs) from the next room. we were like, well, I guess they're going to score in a second. Oh, yep, there it is. So (laughs) kind of took a little bit of the excitement out of it. And she refused to watch the game with us.
0: Well, (sighs) the hot summer day, no one's using deodorant. Everyone has the fleas. I understand. (laughs) Yeah,
1: so. But yeah, I found that amusing. Now, Lizzie, absolutely. She had been... So stoic this entire time, and even when they came in about to deliver the verdict, she was you could not read any emotion on her face. And then when they read the verdict, she broke down, sobbing, and even two of the three judges were getting a little teary-eyed. <laughs> like everybody was for clement. Oh. That's why I say even the judges were a little bit on her side I, because they're like, oh, oh she's she's going to go free. That's that's good. That's I got a
0: really in my snuggle.
1: Yeah. So there were some tales about the jury told uh, some people. These are really stupid rumors and stories, but it's amusing. Some people said that there was an argument that almost turned physical uh, another story was that one juror bribed the, the others bribed the others with liquor in order to try to get everybody to agree to a not guilty verdict but it was exactly like i said they went in out of courtesy to the district attorney they just kind of chitchatted about the evidence for an hour waited another half an hour and then came out then then the jury uh shook lizzie's hand one by one and then headed off to the bar
0: <laughs> my glass to the jury that's where i'm <laughs> heading after this it's it's so late. <laughs> I'm going yes. to the bar after this. i by the bar, the bottle of strawberry wine that's sitting in the fridge. Nice. Mm-hmm.
1: The reporters ask Lizzie, you know, like, what are you going to do now? And she says, I'm going home. I'm going back to Fall River. I just want to go home. Right. So that is the trial. So... This, I thought, was really kind of cute. Uh, The jurors, actually, for the next decade or so, met up once a year and had a little little juror reunion. So it really was all about the friends we made along the way. Aww. (laughs) Uh, So this is all aftermath stuff. Bridget Sullivan uh, moved to Montana, where she got married. John Morse, Lizzie's uncle, moved to Iowa, where he died. Uh, The... District Attorney had some interesting words to say about the conversation between John Morse and Andrew Borden the night before the murders. Now, they talked for like an hour, hour and a half, and they did have some business interests together. But he said, I have made it a rule not to discuss the case as I haven't been around the state. Or, or, sorry, as I have been around the state, but I will say to you what I said the night before the verdict, that if I had known all that Andrew Borden said to John B. Morse on the night preceding the murders, I might believe the guilty one might not now be at liberty. Ooh. So he thinks that if he knew the content of that conversation, he might have been able to put someone, doesn't state who, but someone behind bars. That raises so many questions
0: for me. Yeah, yeah, that now. I'm sorry, just yeah,
1: what? Yeah, there's a lot of uh there. The police kind of still worked on the case in a way. There was a newspaper article about them arresting the Borden's former coachman in 1895, he had. Reportedly had a rough go since the murders, wanted to get some help from Lizzie, but he was illiterate. So he went into a shoe shop and asked somebody, could you write this letter to Lizzie Borden asking if she'll help me out? And that person immediately went to the police because, oh, did I mention he was a black man? So literally anything he did was automatically a crime, apparently. And so he got arrested for, uh- for the murders. Suspicion of murders. Of uh, He wasn't charged, but... Lizzie's lawyers actually came down and said, no, he's fine. Let him out. This is not a, a thing. They, they said that he had been going to the depot to pick up Emma at the time of the murders. But then the paper also said that this is weird, but the paper also said that Andrew Borden never had a coachman. Hmm. So that's a, it's just a strange little occurrence that happened. Uh, as for public opinion, Eh, kind of divided uh the public in general seemed to kind of be okay with the exoneration but the locals in fall river eh, there is a division between the the working class and the uh less working class but even even lizzie's friends were very you know over time they kind of distanced themselves and cut her off she the very the, the sunday following the verdict she tried to go to church, her usual church, where she had volunteered and worked for years. And she basically it was like I think I feel like it was a very cinematic moment because it was her, a complete island, and then this ocean of empty pews around her because nobody wanted to sit near her. I would have. <laughs> yeah, you would have. Yeah.
0: How about you? How about we work on those 40 wax for me, baby? <laughs>
1: Now, she never seemed to go back to that church again. She did keep her pew, which I think actually you—you you, in those times, I don't think it's the case now, but prominent families would pay for the particular pews in the church because we even have to have status signals in the place we go to worship. Even We need to make sure that God sees how important we are.
0: Well, yeah. How else is he going to grant our every wish?
1: exactly
0: because God uh, she, isn't a deity it's a it's a gift giving machine
1: Yeah, she kept that pew until 1905 so some people still harassed her, quite a few actually there was a, an article in the paper about a dude in 1897 who came all the way from Boston to Lizzie's doorstep where he was refused admittance so after that he went and got drunk and then got arrested for being drunk in public uh, Lizzie and Emma moved to a nicer, newer house. It had been built in just 1887, had eight beds. And are you guys ready for how many bathrooms it had?
0: I'd say it's all bathroom. If Four I baths. had to live like them, every room's a bathroom now.
1: Well, every room was a bathroom in their previous existence.
0: Yeah, but like indoor plumbing, every yes. room will have a toilet. And everybody will be happy, and you can just poop anywhere and flush
1: four bathrooms.
0: I knew it,
1: and it was four thousand square feet, nearly that, and had six fireplaces. they Lizzie kind of got this weird, i don't know quirk to her where she wanted to kind of do things, okay, so she she named. The House Maplecroft. And the naming of houses was not really a thing unless it was a mansion. And then that wasn't like it's it's like a nickname. You don't give it to yourself, you know? yeah, but she tried to do that also. She has to be to, sort of. she has to be called Lisbeth. She started uh, going to the theater in Boston. She kind of hung out with a more bohemian gang as the years went on. She became friends with a famous stage actress for a while. And that had Emma clutching those pearls, especially when Lizzie threw a cast party that featured champagne, which remember that Lizzie had worked for some temperance organizations. So, you know, done volunteer work and and leadership and stuff. So, so much for that, I guess. And that was, there was also possibly a fling with the coachman, but their coachman, not the same guy who claimed to have been Andrew Borden's coachman. There were also this is so weird frequent accusations of theft from stores where Lizzie shopped. Like if she walked into a store, it was almost a certainty that that store would be reporting a theft, including, and I don't know how you do this paintings from an art store.: Wow. Did she just shove them up her dress? or I don't. I don't know,
0: but you, you ended up walking I, out looking like Kanye from that one video.
1: Yeah, and that was actually the the theft thing. When especially when that kind of blew up in the local papers, that was too much for one of her former lawyers, and he kind of cut off any sort of uh, sort of acquaintance with her after that. And really, so did Emma in 1905. Uh, she moved out. Uh, basically their reverend advised her to move out said this, this is you know Lizzie she's going too far she's hanging out with actresses she's clearly the devil <laughs> yeah. and so it's interesting that and Lizzie giving up the family pew or her pew at the Church coincided the same year. The Reverend advising Emma, I'm assuming, was, you know, the impetus for her to be like, okay, I'm not giving you my money for this pew that remains empty every Sunday because you people ostracize me. So, you know, it was the old-timey middle finger. Yeah, they
2: refused to sit anywhere near her. Yeah, and she'd kept that
1: pew. She still paid for that pew, I'm assuming, probably paid for it, because how else do you keep it, for over ten years So after somebody is like, you know, like the the reverend tells your sister that she shouldn't be around you anymore. You're kind of like, okay, well, fuck you, too, I guess. And the thing is that, a Emma took all their friends with her. They were like, we're going to we're going to hang out with the Borden sister who hasn't been on trial for murder. So bye. And Emma also said bye. She and Lizzie after 1905 never spoke again. Never. It's uh, just like keeping in mind their relationship had been so close that like Emma was a mother figure to Lizzie. So it must have been a really rough break. Now, hmm. Lizzie still stuck around town despite the fact that that children's rhyme started up about her. I don't know if that was just a, if that started in Fall River or started somewhere else, but I do believe she was aware of it. And there was also one local newspaper that really hated her. So every year in August on the anniversary of the murders, they would write these mocking articles about her. The the headline one year was perhaps the murderer or murderess may be in the city. Who can tell?
0: You would have almost had to have been at least at one point.
1: (laughs) And the next year... An article uh, insisted that there were no Borden murders. Both the victims of 13 years ago died as a result of excessive heat. Oh, there,
0: there have been some real bullshit theories.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, we'll get into the theory soon. But that is that's not a theory. That's them being bitchy is what that is. That's them 13 years after the murder, still throwing barbs at Lizzie. They just won't let it go. And they also talk in the newspapers about how much money that Lizzie and Emma had. Jointly, they had uh, $350,000 in 1898, which would be $11.3 today.
2: Yeah, they weren't hurting for cash.
1: I'd like they to have weren't. that. Yes. And the question was, why didn't they use some of that to find the real killer? You know? That was the question on everybody's lips. But... Lizzie never said anything publicly and in 1927 she died she was 67 years old this was a really interesting note about her funeral Uh, all the people she had specifically made a list in her pre-planning of the people she wanted to come to her funeral so they were told they were invited to the funeral they came and they were told well we had the funeral last night so bye (sighs) Like, what? I don't know if that was like a, a a fuck up on the part of the the funeral home or if it was something she did intentionally, like invite people she didn't like to her funeral and then make them go out of their way kind of as a as a last middle finger to the world from somebody who was too proper to give a real middle finger but but yeah,
2: um. Well, she, and that was the the more interesting articles that I read was basically like she deliberately did not invite anybody to her funeral because of the way they treated her. But apparently she invited some people. Yeah, like the people But just
1: made sure, sure the funeral happened her. without them. Yeah. 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 But it's still, even if they were cool with her, the funeral still happened without them there. It happened like 12 hours before they arrived. But possibly on purpose? I don't know. It's a, it's a strange thing. But... As for money, because yes, there was, like we said, wealth here, she had $225,000 at that point, and it was distributed amongst her heirs. That would be $3.7 million today. Emma, this, this was something. The day Lizzie died, Emma, who was living in New Hampshire, fell and broke her hip. And 12 days later, she also passed. And she was also, she was worth even more than Lizzie, she was worth $6.7 million in today's money, and she left the bulk of that to charity. So even, I don't know when her will was made, if it was made after the broken hip, or prior to it, you know, if it was made when she thought that death was a strong possibility, or when she was hale and hearty, but... She, if it was made before she knew Lizzie died, I find that interesting that she cut her out. But you know, it's not like it was not like Lizzie would have been hard off. She still had money, but she was dead, so she didn't care.
0: See, I have it here that uh, Lizzie left $30,000, which would be well over half a million dollars in today's money. Uh, she left $30,000 to the Fall River Animal Rescue League. She left $500, which would be about 10 grand today. In trust for the perpetual care of her father's grave uh, Her closest friend and her cousin Each received $6,000 Around 120000 today And numerous friends and family members Each received about uh, $1,000 to $5,000 each Hmm <laughs> I
1: feel like there's some money missing in there
2: <laughs> A lot, well, yeah
0: n- Numerous
1: <laughs> Yeah Maybe something with secret, but that I is. don't know So today, all right, so the the houses, there's Maplecroft, the house that they moved to uh, in the aftermath of the trial, and then there's also the original, and there's been some events with both of those in recent years. Now, Maplecroft stayed a private residence until 2020, so just last year, when it was put up for sale for $890,000. It was uh, fully furnished with a variance for a bed and breakfast, and that actually... That was done by the owners of the Lizzie Borden B&B, so the original Borden house. They purchased Maplecroft in 2018, improved it, and they were actually going to have another B&B there, but then COVID. <laughs> so that's how we explain everything these days. Well, then COVID, then COVID. And yeah, then COVID. And so they put that up for sale. And now, when I, I looked at this just today, And the sites that were listing it, I could find, like, links to those, but I had to go to the cached version because it all said this listing is no longer available. So that may have been purchased. And the original house, had a, like I said, had the B&B, and the owners really kind of played up this supernatural angle, stories of ghosts and footsteps and laughter and disembodied voices and all that stuff. And they also had a house psychic.
0: God fucking damn it.
1: Of course yeah. they did. Yeah. Now, as of January 2021, not too long before this episode, it is for sale for $2 million. And I looked today. The current status is under agreement and pending. And on the sale website, it, it said updated 31 minutes ago. So that that might have changed, like, right in the moment. This might be, like, right almost up to the minute reporting of old-timey murder. So, um Although this episode won't come out for a couple weeks, but the, uh, the sale includes business trademarks, intellectual rights and property. So there's a lot there. We'll see if somebody, maybe I'm thinking the strong possibility that same person bought both to, to go with the business venture. So yeah. Um, do you guys, uh, that's my kind of general aftermath shit of people's lives and houses afterwards. Do you guys have anything there? I didn't catch it. Nope. Um,
2: I just have something from the listing to yes. encourage people to buy it. They uh they put picture yourself serving fun hatchet cookies.
0: God <laughs> damn it.
2: I saw I love that. it. <laughs> Beautiful. Yes, they really
1: they kitch it up as far as uh as far as that angle is concerned. Uh I still I still want to go there, but <laughs> it's it's on my list. So there were, I have a couple of weird shit before we get to theories, just real quick stuff. Um, there were Lizzie Borden clubs, okay?
0: That's not the, the right the, thing. That the, She used an ax. Why
2: a club? <laughs> I was just about to say that.
1: <laughs> Nicely done, both of you. Thank you. Now, uh, this particular one seemed to be revolving around temperance, although they weren't in favor of prohibition. So they, they, they took, you know, they kind of sort of pseudo bonded with her identity as far as the temperance was concerned this is from the Fall River Daily Globe July 8th 1893 so uh, just as the trial was, was going there were also Emma Borden clubs I should tell you a delegate from the Emma Borden Club of Brockton a similar organization was present and presented the local organization with a hatchet so formidable in appearance as to unnerve any ordinary man The blade is nine inches long and five inches wide. It has a handle as large as that of a pickaxe and has a peculiar slanting construction of the head. It has a saw-like edge and a number of stains on either side of the blade, which the members claim to be blood. (sighs) And so they do the initiation of new members.
0: You have to kill your parents.
1: Yeah, all those admiring, sorry, all those desiring admission uh, kneel onto the floor where one of the officers of the association places the edge of the hatchet in 13 different positions on his skull. The initiated member would then be obliged to clean the edge of the instrument with his handkerchief and then burn the handkerchief.
0: If you accidentally <laughs> get cut by this, do you automatically gain enter- uh, uh, entry? Um, I Maybe, but I mean, it's already, you're already
1: most of the way there anyhow, just by uh, by kneeling and letting them, them touch you with the, the hatchet. So they have, like, after that, they address everybody with the hatchet in the center of the table. And then every member takes the hatchet in their hand, holds it above their head. And responds like kind of like they're about to chop somebody up or something up. Uh, I do to the following oath. I solemnly swear not to reveal to any person or persons anything that transpires at the meetings of the Lizzie Borden Entertainment Club. Yeah, they call it that. I believe. Somebody did, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I be- yeah, right. It's in the paper. <laughs> the first rule of the Lizzie Borden Entertainment Club is you go tell a reporter about the Lizzie Borden Entertainment Club. I believe that the person who committed the horrible deed was under the influence of liquor and a masculine hand struck the death blows. That is Pe- people are weird is the takeaway that I want you to have there. Yeah. We know that. There is also one other, you see why this falls under the heading of weird shit. <laughs> there was also one other incident soon after the trial mrs wright the matron of the prison where lizzie had been or the jail rather during the you know between the murders and the trial uh she came to visit lizzie soon after lizzie was exonerated and lizzie was like i should return the favor you know go call on her so she's like oh mrs wright i'm gonna bring a picnic lunch to the jail and this would have been july 27th so really like like a week after the verdict And so she went with a friend and basically the local press found this out and they were like, she's going to turn herself in. And that turned into a whole big thing. And it got as far as the AP, the Associated Press, only they were like, you know what? This hasn't been taken far enough. Let's run this the next hundred yards. And they were like, Lizzie confessed and she went to the jail after an angry mob chased her down. So if you want to know how journalism was back then, it sucked.
0: Much like today. Yeah. Everybody All right, you guys er- want- everybody back then, Fox News, hire them right up.
1: Yeah. All right, let's finish this up with theories. This is there is some weird I honestly theories and weird shit are close together because there's some weird shit in the theories you guys.
0: Yeah, my my favorite theory, not the That's one That's exactly that-
1: where I what, that, oh. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted each of us to pick our favorite one and start off with that. So okay. go ahead.
0: My favorite theory. This was put forth by uh, the author, Victoria Lincoln, in her, in her book, A Private Disgrace, Lizzie Borden by Daylight. Uh, Lizzie did kill her parents, but it was during an epileptic seizure.
2: <laughs>
0: that's interesting. <laughs> so she doesn't even remember killing her parents. She has She has epilepsy. Like she in the middle of her seizure, I guess she just grabs the axe and just sort of vibrates, and as everybody tries to stop her, she just hacks away. Wow. No,
2: okay. I I thoroughly enjoy that one too. Although I think mine just said something about like a seizing fit, is the way it was worded. Mm. Um but hmm, I like The doctor did it.
0: Dr. Seabury. Bowen? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Bowen. Ah. That one, I got to say, Amber, the the theory that Dr. Bowen is the killer actually has some teeth to it.
2: It really does, because he's strong enough to deliver the the blows. Mm -hmm. Lizzie obviously set it up and let him in the house. And then he had time to go and change and clean up and dispose of the weapon, and nobody's looking at him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so like
2: I think Lizzie's in on it. And that's what their private conversation behind locked doors was. I'm surprised they didn't get to boinking after that, but whatever. Hmm. Okay. Those are good. Uh all right. So as far as favorite, there's there's
1: different Different definitions of favorite, I guess. I guess the one that I favor as being a possible alternative to Lizzie having actually committed these herself was it stems from a poster in the unresolved subreddit actually was trying to kind of connect uh, the Borden murders to the, the what they call the man from the train, who was we talked about this in the hinter Kaifek episode. This this theory that the Velisca axe murders were one of these that a, a bunch of axe murders throughout the like 1900s the standard time period is 1898 to 1912 were committed by the same person who just went from town to town on the train, and they you know have a, a bunch of uh, points connecting to this and and this theory. And I really think actually we should read that book and talk about it sometime. But so they basically so Veliska's on the outside edge of that. And then Kaifek is on the far, far edge of that in 1922. So this theory is that they were early victims of the man from the train. And so you have a couple of things. You have a nearby train. Yes. Okay. Pa- probably the family's own axe used for the murders. Yes. Uh, but the thing is, is that it, usually these weren't done during the day. And it usually was an entire family, as we saw in Veliska and, and Tinter Kaifek, And this obviously, like, Abby was right there in the house. Bridget was there in the house. Bridget, not necessarily a member of the family, but of the household. So those don't match up. But my theory is maybe not necessarily man on the train, but someone similar. Instead of having to gain entry because they, they've always, that was a big point that the prosecution was trying to, you know, hammer home was there was no way to get into the house. At some point, they had found entry to the house, and it didn't have to be that day because I think, looking at the floor plan, that there were plenty of places to hide in that house. In the cellar, there were two wood rooms and a fruit cellar, and only one wood room was habitually locked, and the fruit cellar also was not habitually locked. That would have been a nice cooler place to go in the in the summertime. The attic was also a possibility. There was uh, Bridget. Bridget's bedroom was there, but there was also a storage space and an unfinished bedroom. I think those are possibilities. Uh, the only thing, again, the first of all, that the idea that they didn't get Bridget or Lizzie counts against that particular theory, um, and the fact that there's such a interval between the deaths, it feels targeted, targeted like they intended to kill Abby. And then intended to kill Andrew, they killed Abby, and then they had to wait for Andrew to come home, and then Lizzie to leave the room before they could kill Andrew. So if, if, if Lizzie didn't do it, and it was some person in the house, and if it's targeted, it would have to be somebody who's targeting for them a reason. So I was like, maybe an ex-lover of somebody's. So that's, that's my complete uh, riff of the man on the train theory. And that's, that's my personal
0: favorite. Um,
1: other theories... Uh, this is this is a fun one. Illegitimate sibling.
0: Oh, that one was thrown out. It's such bullshit. It but... is such bullshit. They've even done like DNA testing. No.
1: <laughs> yeah. No. But I had th- there's a very very small subset of our listeners, like maybe two of them, and um, <laughs> and the members that aren't in the subset, I really don't care if you judge me, but for the members that are, uh, this is like final season of Pretty Little Liars levels of reaching. Like, this is, like, this plot point came out of nowhere. What Nobody, there's no reason to think this. So the illegitimate sibling is silly. Uh, Theory that Emma was actually not out of town or on her way back. She was hiding in the house, kind of man on the train-like, and killed them. That's a theory. Uh, Theory that Lizzie had been abused by their father and... Then, so she'd killed both him and Abby, which uh, I can immediately say. Why was Abby's more vicious than her father's? Then,
0: my um, one of my favorite ones was by Todd Lunday, who wrote "The Mystery Unveiled: The Truth About the Borden Tragedy." Fresh light that must be convincing to all readers. Now, <laughs> seeing as how that's the title, anybody want to guess? You know, round about the publication date.
1: I'm going to go with 1893. Ooh, dead fucking on. So the year of the trial managed Mm -hmm. to get this out. The publishing amazingly has actually gotten slower (laughs) since the 1890s.
0: (laughs) I actually have a PDF in front of me right now of, of, of this book. And it, first off, it reads like stereo instructions. Uh, It is, it's absolutely fucking ridiculous. The last paragraph is written all in, well, it's half in italics and then all capital letters, like screaming. And I'd like to read this last paragraph if I could. Absolutely. Now, what are we to say of the case? This colon, at a recent court convened according to the laws of the period, Commonwealth of Massachusetts, comma, the first party of the only two who could have committed the deed, comma, the party of unhindered opportunity was declared not guilty. Everything else from here on out, capital letters. And I have demonstrated in the pages of this volume the absolute and entire innocence of the second party, leaving no grounds for any doubt. It, comma, therefore, comma, follows that no murder was committed. Oh, land of the free. Oh. <coughs> <coughs> oh, <laughs> land of the free, in which the foulest of crimes may be committed in the quiet of the home, even in the open blaze of midday, and yet nobody at the door!
1: Is, is this like a false flag conspiracy theorist?
0: I have no idea.
1: <laughs> nobody knows what this man is talking
0: about, not even him. It's like Alex Jones.
1: <laughs> well, get some gay frogs in there and we will be complete.
0: The hilarious thing about the gay frogs thing, he was kind of right.
1: <laughs> hey, I know there's a whole thing, but uh there's another theory. Okay, so Bridget Sullivan comes into a couple of theories. One theory that basically is just she was so pissed off that it was such a hot day and Abby asked her to clean the windows and she was like, I've been sick. I've been vomiting this morning. I don't want to clean the damn windows in the hot sun that she just snapped and killed Abby and Andrew. And then there's also the theory that... uh it's 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 more it's it's definitely far in the fictional realm, but the theory that uh, Bridget and Lizzie had a little thing going and they got caught and that explains why L- Bridget so many of her actions seem to cover for Lizzie. So there you go. Oh, There's yeah. that. It seems like that's the. Uh, I, I haven't watched it yet. I still am going to, but the. Movie, the Lizzie Borden movie that came out somewhat recently with uh, Chloe Savini and Kristen Stewart. So that seems to be the idea there. Definitely going to watch that at some point. So, and there's that theory. There's the John Morse theory, which there's so many theories about him. This one destroys me though, uh, that it was uh, authors Rich Little and Beverly Folstead self-published a book with a theory that John Morse and Andrew... So they had been in this livestock venture together, and the idea was that Morse had lost money in it. So their conversation the night before the murders was actually a fight, an argument about this lost money. And because apparently John Morse was a butcher, he always carried a cleaver with him, like you do. (laughs) You might might find some random meat to chop. (laughs) What the hell?
0: Sounds sexy.
1: And so there, there he is. He used a cleaver to kill Abby, left to look for an alibi, which is kind of a weird thing to do when you haven't even killed the main target of your ire, came back, killed Andrew, and then when he gave his alibi to police, he just changed the times in his story in order to make it so that it was technically impossible for him to be there. So their idea is that these blows that look like ax blows was actually him whacking them in the head with a meat cleaver and that is weird and i don't buy it one bit the other other idea was you know there of course was the idea that morse and um lizzie were hooking up uncle and niece ew but there's another theory that he was hooking up with bridget and Uh, when they were having a little rendezvous, uh, Abby caught them or something, and then the violence ensued. But still, his alibi was just accepted and he was rolled out, and and that was that. And then I think this is my last theory, and then we're done, but it's a little bit long one. There's this weird ass theory that comes out in January 1985, so almost a century after the murders. Did you guys read about this one?
0: No. Let me see if that's in my notes. I don't see anything from 1985.
1: Okay. So this was Ruby Cameron, who wasn't even alive when the murders occurred. She was 84 in 1985. So she wasn't born until 1901. She came forward and said that she knew who had killed the Bordens. It was a man named David Mason Anthony Jr. He was 23 and from a prominent local family. And she had a lot to say about this. He owned a motorcycle. He worked for his father's meat packing plant. Uh, Ruby's parents also worked for that family. And her mother was actually worked in the Anthony household. So it was quite privy to the goings on in the house. And he did live kind of in the neighborhood of Lizzie. So they were, and they were sometimes kind of in the same place, like a week before the murders, Lizzie was vacationing with some friends in the same area that David's uncle's yacht. The Mabel F. Swift was uh, was was docked, but it's it's tenuous at best. So Ruby Cameron said, "Here's the story: David and Lizzie were in love, and we all know how Andrew was about Lizzie's love interests. He 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 just cut all of them off. He was like, no, 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 no. And so Andrew wouldn't let the pair be together." David went into a rage and killed Andrew and Abby. After which he went to, uh, well, during which he went to the woodshed, found the axe, came in, and went to town. Ruby's story was that her parents knew about this because Bridget then, after the murders, on she, she was on on the side of David and Lizzie. She ran to David's parents' house to tell them, look, your son just murdered my employers. We got to fix this. And they also roped Ruby's mother and father into helping do uh, do some cover up there. So David died in 1924 in a motorcycle accident or in 1917 in a flu epidemic. Both of those uh, are, <laughs> are possible. Ruby said flu epidemic. It's weird. Uh, But she also said that he used to take her out for rides on his motorcycle, and uh, David even occasionally made little secret visits to Lizzie after everything settled down with the trial. But supposedly, when Lizzie was dying, Ruby was Lizzie's nurse, and Lizzie confessed... That David had done it. And also Ruby had been in her, you know, her parents had been in the household of David's family. So that was another tie there. Um, it does explain a couple questions. The lack of blood on Lizzie. Well, you know, if somebody else did it. Uh, where the murder weapon went. Well, the family, you know, his family helped take care of that. Uh, that, that whole idea about Abby getting a note. There's that doesn't explain the difference in times of death like 90 minutes to an hour or sorry two hours does not at all explain that and there's there's a lot of holes like the 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 timing as far as bridget running a whole entire mile to tell the anthony's what had happened and then getting everybody back to the house everybody doing some cleanup getting david out between Andrew's death and the cops arriving, it just doesn't seem possible. And also, Ruby, eh, I'm sorry, but she, her stories are, are all over the place. She likes to she likes to tell big stories about her life, but she gets facts wrong. Like she can't e- she doesn't even have the maid's name right. She doesn't even have Bridget Sullivan. She calls her Nora Donahue. No one can get this woman's name right.
0: Uh, poor woman.
1: I know. <laughs> And her story just constantly changes. Like first she's like, oh, you know, I just I found out this story because my parents helped with the cover-up. And then later she's like, oh, I found out this story because I was Lizzie Borden's nurse. And all in all, it it doesn't hold a lot of water, but it does bring in this complete character that never was in the story at all, which don't all the best stories end that way? (sighs) All the best stories end. With a character that never appeared in the uh, the, the, the four and a half hours <laughs> prior.
0: Maybe that was the nobody.
1: <laughs> Coming in and being the culprit. Yes, exactly. It's it's the nobody did it theory of Jack the Ripper all over again. So, yeah. Do you guys have any theories I haven't hit on?
0: Oh, God, nope. no. <laughs> God, no. It's, ex- it's Tendul Midnight.
1: I'm. <laughs> <What? laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I shouldn't apologize for doing extensive research, but I am sorry. <laughs> I'm also sorry to my back, which hurts. Um, my so my all right, that is, is it for full us.
0: to bursting.
1: It has been a long episode, so I'm not going to do my bullshit, but do go and review us on iTunes. Check out Patreon, all that, all that jazz. Just listen to any other episode, I'll say it. Uh, thank <laughs> you to all of our new listeners who are joining us. And... What we are doing this weekend is peeing a lot in a minute. So we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to our filthy words for 101 episodes. Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: My sources for this week are legendsofamerica.com biography.com wikipedia.org famoustrials.com womenshistory.org I'm sure you're proud of this one. And zocallopublicsquare.org Wow. Yeah.
2: My sources this week are biography dot com, history dot com, dot com by Joseph Kinforti, Livescience.com by Mindy Weisenberger, Mental Floss by Stacy Conrad, and Bustle dot com by Leah Beck. My sources this week are
1: The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Carol Robertson, The Evening World via the Library of Congress, Deborah Allard on the Herald News, Wikipedia, Douglas O'Linder and his law students on Famous Trials. LizzieAndrewBorden.com Diana Griffiths on The Hatchet A Journal of Lizzie Borden and Victorian Studies William F. Hanna on the Old Colony History Museum The Boston Globe via Newspapers.com Thank you, Chris Garcia And the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit As well as NewEngland.com